So how have you been? Um, I have been, it was a nice longer weekend, um, yeah. for me. So, uh, that was relaxing. Um, I spent time up at my family's cabin in Cotton, Minnesota, and ah. um, I was teaching my mom to quilt. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. That's, that's very backwards. <laughs> right? What expects moms to teach us how to quilt? Right. <laughs> she's like, she's like, I need a way to, um, I need to find a way to uh, interact with you on a more regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> so, did your mom? Did your mom pick up quilting? Uh, was she like? Did she find like? it suited her um yeah so when i was younger we used to scrapbook a lot uh with you know fun page colors and stickers and crayons and markers and pictures Mm -hmm. um and we always actually used to joke that if we quilted it would probably last longer and get more use (laughs) than, than uh the scrapbook and the scrapbooks are sitting you know in a uh been in their basement now and they come yeah. out every five years or so um but yeah i've been quilting for the past um two and a half three years yeah and um, my mom keeps saying that she wants to learn she you know wants to make a quilt for their bed and because yeah. i get one of my first quilts i made i gifted it to them for christmas so yeah it was a yeah it was a she she liked it she wants to keep going she sends me pictures uh at home of like hey look i i i'm i'm continuing on i spent all day working on these trimming these squares up and i'm like go mom (laughs) that's wonderful i mean there's just something beautiful about quilts right like quilts are like my favorite metaphor for like all the things i love right like it's just like You know, you're taking scraps uh, that would otherwise get thrown away, and then you're making something that, you know, often lasts generations, becomes these heirloom things that, like, right, are made with love and that, like, get loved and then, like, that keep you warm and cozy, yeah. right? Like, there's yeah. just something, like, I, I wish, you know, everything worked like quilts, right? Like, that we took things that were uh, were meant for, like, or that other people would discard and then, you know, use them to express it, it, love. You got to breathe them new life, right? Like, yeah. Um, and actually, that's something I've been thinking a lot about quilting um, is like there's kind of two different branches of quilting. So there's like okay. like you're talking about taking scraps or discarded clothing or worn, something worn out yeah. um, fabric uh, and and breathing in new life. Um, and, and it's very like um, kind of industrial and mm-hmm. you know that's its purpose. Um, and then and then I mean, not to say that that can't be creative and, you know, artistic and things but i think then there's also another line of quilting that's right. um y- using uh raw materials right, <laughs> like right, right. taking long sheets of fabric and cutting them up <laughs> into small <laughs> squares and then putting those small squares back together yeah, yeah. Uh, into a, a new long sheet of fabric um but that's also you know like creativity and expression um and kind of a more artistic approach to quilting but you know thinking about sustainability and um and quilting, I, I do, you know, as I'm, yeah. I'm going to the local quilt shop, you know, making decisions kind of similar to buying food, you know, there's yeah. all different types of sizes of stores to buy quilting fabric at. And, you know, you have your large box store uh, that has lots of coupons. You always get, you know, the 20% <laughs> off um, yeah. or you go to the smaller independent local quilt shop. Um, I, I visit frequently one in, in Northeast called Knit and Bolts. So they have yarn okay. and fabric and and all different kinds of things. And so it's kind of like your more independent um, retail store. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's also like wholesale. Like they're, one of the stores that I really appreciate is SR Harris Fabric. And um, 
They buy, you know, huge truckloads of fabric that yeah. didn't sell other places. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like a secondhand-ish. Um, so instead of those other companies, um, you know, tossing that fabric or recycling or whatever they do with it, um, yeah. they market super low. And then SR Harris is able to offer that at a low price too. Um, <laughs> so we want, yeah, when I'm thinking about, you know, what, what, what does sustainability look like in the world and a lot of my free time over, over, well, I, to be fair, I started quilting before, um, COVID, yeah. but <laughs> just slightly before. Um, <laughs> but uh, so a lot of my, my free time in my, in my, I've, I've turned my hobby into quilting and I think, mm-hmm. you know, what are, what are the fabrics I'm sourcing? Where are they coming from? And, um, and kind of what was their past life and what new life am I giving them? That's cool. Yeah. I feel like I need to tweak up quilting. Like I, I've been trying to find it like it's just sort of a fun hobby. Um, yeah. No, they, it's, it's, yeah, it's super. I, so I, I, um, I, I, I see a therapist weekly um, yeah. for mental health and it's frequently a topic like so many analogies and metaphors can come from quilting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the idea of perfection and, um, and versus usability and, yeah. you know, the kind of being okay with your lines, not your stitch lines, not being straight or your corners, not exactly, you know, 90 degrees and, um, yeah. and still having something that's usable and warm and, uh, yeah, just kind of, I, yeah, I feel like I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, no, I, I think that there's right. Like again, right. Like I, I think quilting is a great metaphor for many of the things that I think about. Hi, I'm Clement Liu, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. In today's episode, I have the very distinct pleasure of introducing you to Ren Olive. For the past decade, Ren has been deeply involved in work related to improving food access across a broad range of communities. They've worked with one of the largest food banks in the country, Second Harvest Heartland, and with the Regional Sustainability Development Partnerships, which is housed within the University of Minnesota Extension. They have a remarkable depth and breadth of practical and scholarly knowledge about food access, and I'm really excited to share some of that knowledge with all of you. That being the case, let's get started. As always, I began our conversation by asking Ren to introduce themselves to you. Here's what they said. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about quilting, but uh, I would suppose that some of the folks that will be listening to this podcast don't know who you are, so would you tell them? (laughs) So who is Ren Olive, in the words of Ren Olive, other than uh, a, a quilter? Yeah, so um, so in addition to being a quilter, um, I kind of th- thinking about my different identities and how mm-hmm. I show up in the world. Um, I am a queer, non-binary millennial. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I, I kind of have a... Um, uh, uh, so like sense of place and my identity. Mm-hmm. So I live in North Minneapolis, so I am definitely placed in the city. Um, mm-hmm. But my, my background and, and growing up um, and, you know, the f- first chunk of my life uh, mm-hmm. is in rural, rural Minnesota. Um, I also uh, am a spouse to mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, human <laughs> who is in grad school. Uh, I'm yeah. also a grad school student. <laughs> I work full time with Extension uh, at the Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships. Mm-hmm. I love 
to quilt like you like we've talked about i love spending time with my family and friends mm-hmm. and uh i have kind of a zoo of <laughs> of animals of pets two dogs two cats and a snake um yeah. we used to also have a housemate and a housemate's cat uh but they have moved out you know a couple uh-huh. years ago so okay <laughs> but uh yeah. in terms of oh go ahead Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just thinking, like, uh, I feel like I think I've known you for almost eight or nine years. I don't know where you grew up. I assumed you grew up in the cities, but I guess you didn't. Where did you grow up? No, no, I didn't. So uh, going far back into the beginnings of Ren Olive, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was I was actually born in DeKalb, Illinois. Okay. Um, so if you've ever seen the flying corn, that's the kelp corn. Okay. Um, it's also like, I think, uh, barbed wire was, DeKalb was kind of a, a launching point for barbed wire. Um, okay. if I'm remembering correctly, or maybe that's just been told to me, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, my parents were in grad school at Northern mm-hmm. Illinois university. And, uh, so it was me and my brother for, and we've jumped around a couple years following different jobs, um, that adjunct life, mm-hmm. uh, of my parents, um, including Duluth where my mom's family is all from, all from, uh, Winona. We spent a year, mm-hmm. uh, back to DeKalb. Um, and then we landed in Dodge Center when I was about in third grade. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's Southeast Minnesota. Okay. Uh, no, that's all over the place. And a lot of it is quick rural. Um, but yeah, I had interrupted you. <laughs> about to say something else before i'm like oh i did know you were from you grew up in rural minnesota oh i don't i don't remember what i was gonna say so that's okay after ren said a bit about who they are i dove right in and asked them about how they with their extensive experience defined food access their answer to that question provided both an important critique about how superficially food access is often conceived of as well as offering a peek into how food banks and food recovery programs within the united states often work uh, you had mentioned that you work for uh, the RSDPs, but before that, you worked at uh, Second Harvest Heartland, right? I did, yes, the food bank. Um, yeah, so the, so I guess this is like sort of the reason why I asked you to be on the show because you have a what strikes me is a, an interesting, really broad perspective on when it comes to like food access, right? So like, uh, I think most people when they think about food access, think about it in terms of urban areas and like think about things like urban food deserts. But uh, I've always thought like you know rural sort of food deserts and like kind of lack of access to food in rural places is something that's I think kind of even more pervasive and often not talked about. So I wanted to ask you about like, given that your, your career spent working both in like urban areas and rural spaces when it comes to food access. um, Yeah. I mean, I I guess, you know, like what, what do you like, what is your sort of kind of view of like, uh, right. What food access means? What are the things affecting food access? Like the, Right, like yeah. when it comes to food systems, like equity and sustainability, like all those sort of things. Yeah. So, in terms of food access, I think a lot of people, um, and and including myself, uh, you think in terms of scarcity, mm-hmm. uh, and you jump into the scarcity mindset of, you know, people are hungry, they aren't getting enough. You, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's the whole poverty and um and 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 we could kind of depends on like kind of what level you know troy goodnow who i know you've had on the podcast is a a mentor and Mm -hmm. um i worked a lot when i was at morris with him so you you say let's jump back to the five hundred thousand foot level or the hundred thousand foot (laughs) level or the ten thousand foot level yeah yeah (laughs) um but so jumping back um you know so there's there's part of the conversation of food access is also um you know uh income um and Mm -hmm. uh uh, facing poverty or mm-hmm. 
kind of that the the jobs in our society um that are actually really linked to food. So I think mm-hmm. about this a lot are often jobs that are underpaid or undervalued, <laughs> I mm-hmm. think. Um, yeah. So thinking about food access, so that idea of scarcity and um, that's really not the case. Yeah. If you look at food production and food waste, we mm-hmm. have an abundance of food. We have mm-hmm. food, we have so much food that it's constantly being culled off the grocery shelves or mm-hmm. thrown out of the refrigerator once it's home or in the field discarded because that, uh, you know, apple is, is slightly bumpy or that mm-hmm. cucumber doesn't measure the USDA standard for number one cucumbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, our, our food access isn't, there isn't a problem of, of, of having like, there is enough food to feed everyone. Right, right. And I, and I, I know there's lots of research that's been done on that. And I, I can't pull, I'm, I'm actually pretty terrible at pulling out like, <laughs> who, who did what research. No, Similar okay. to like pop culture and like who's in what movie. And yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I have, I have like documents and things that I refer back to, but I, I apologize to those who've done research and who, you know, I'm probably quoting, no, but so, so, um, <laughs> to be fair, I, I so this is my area of research, and I always forget like who wrote what, and I'm always just like, oh, this person. Like I was just about to bring up like, yeah. Yeah. I, I was gonna bring up the book like Poverty and Famines. I'm like, who wrote that book? Oh shoot, <laughs> they have a Nobel Prize. Why can't I think of their name? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so that's fair. Um, but uh, yeah, not, uh, um, I can't think of the specific reference too, but it is pretty consistent that somewhere between forty and sixty percent of food across exactly. like. Uh, like across like systems like no matter where you are it gets discarded Uh, i think depending on like the sort of like economy and agricultural system it depends it changes where that food is sort of lost like either if it's lost in the field because it can't be harvested quick enough lost during like you know the the intermediate stage between you know the field transport yeah yeah. Yeah. or like lost uh post-consumer i think in the u.s it's most most of it is it gets off the field and then between processing transportation and just like people buying things and then leaving in the fridge till it goes bad. Yep. That's where most of yep. it is. I think in the States. Yeah. 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 So your question about um, food access, I mean, I think that um, the, the, the amount of food we have is not the problem. I think mm-hmm. that it's um, it's more of a systemic, um, you know, f- getting the, the, First of all, like the overproduction of food, I think, is a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then also, like a lot people's access um, to being able to purchase the food that they need and, um, mm-hmm. and the nutrition that they need. I mean, I, I think you know, food is a, a human right, and um, similar access to clean water, you know, mm-hmm. access to healthcare, uh, and and having wages that aren't poverty wages, wages that are um, able to sustain someone um, and also give them a life that they enjoy. I I guess I take a very um, liberal approach, and and that's you know one of my. It, you asked, uh, you know, who who's Ren Olive? Um, mm-hmm. I I am very much a person that. Um, believes that there's enough to go around and mm-hmm. that, you know, quoting Paul Wellstone, when we all do better, we all do better. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that in terms of food too, um, it's, it's, 
it's it's complex. Right. <laughs> it's not just you know that this the food. I mean, it is also just you. Can, there's not food available in a community. I mean, that's a huge problem right, right. in terms of food deserts and um and and rural food deserts. So, a food desert being an area that um it, it, there's a, a certain mileage depending upon population of how far someone needs to travel in order to mm-hmm. access food. And when when areas are are counted as food deserts, oftentimes certain sizes of stores are only mm-hmm. counted. Um, and, and so like, you know, considering corner stores or, or very, very small grocery stores, um, that's a, you know, a a food access point, but they Mm -hmm. might not be able to supply the whole range of food that a family needs or a person needs. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I guess access to food in terms of like geographic location can also be a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that there's also... Uh, and I'm not an economist or anything like that, but, um, you know, having, having the means in order to purchase the food. Um, right. so when I'm working at second harvest heartland, um, our mission was ending hunger. <laughs> right, right. And, right. um, and I think that a lot of, I mean, looking back now, a lot of the work that I did, I'm, I'm definitely proud of the work that I did. I think second harvest, um, and, and our hunger relief system is obviously serving a purpose. Right. Um, but I think it's a broken system. I don't, I mean, in, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have uh-huh. food banks. People would have, um, enough money to buy the food they need. Um, and right. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, it's um, very they, much a, like a slap a bandaid on and sort of solution. Oh, right? absolutely. It's a bandaid, it's a bandaid fix. Um, and, and, and the way that food banks work is we don't, when I was working at Second Harvest, we were constantly trying to find more food to get to the food shelf. So we were kind of like the wholesaler of food for mm-hmm. the food shelves. So that's like kind of the role of the food bank. And um, thinking about like Feeding America, so we were part of this national network of food mm-hmm. banks and food shelves. And and so there's lots of resources and money and food all coming in and from huge corporations um, and from right. private donors and, and, and you know, feel – people who have beans feeling good that they're helping the community out, um, you know, or where I'm giving my, my well-earned money to people so that they can go stand in line and get a box of food. Right. Um, and, and at second harvest, we used to uh, kind of monitor like the size of, of pounds of food. And like, you know, we'd say we, we, in my position, I was in, I was in a couple different positions. I started out on a, 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 mm-hmm. a grant working with farmers markets and farmers to try to capture their excess food um, so that it wouldn't be just plowed back in to the soil, um, which, you know, returns nutrients to the soil, but all the resources that went into producing that food um, in kind of the larger picture, getting actually eating that food is that that's already been produced and already been grown. And, you know, it makes more sense. Um, And so I would be communicating with farmers about this opportunity that they could get compensated for their time and labor um, through a a grant project. Um, Farm to food shelf is what we were calling it. And Mm -hmm. so I spent a summer like going to farmer's markets. um, And that was a a really cool way to see the state some more. I just graduated from Morris um, with a degree in environmental studies and political science. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, having kind of a, a... a, a step into the state in the in the area that I wanted to pursue a career in was a really neat opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with a farmer uh, who was employed by Second Harvest, um, Heidi Co. She was a fabulous mentor and um, boss, I guess, yeah. uh, and then later coworker. Um, so after that summer 
ended and, you know, I was just doing a lot of outreach to kind of tell farmers about this opportunity and to try to get them to donate product. Um, I, uh, want, want, I was invited to stay on with Second Harvest and encouraged uh-huh. to impl- apply for a position with agency relations. So that was helping food, sh- food shelves order food from the food bank. So processing mm-hmm. orders, um, putting together the bulk produce reports. It was this ridiculous system of, um, you know, the there would be orders that would come in from the food shelves for certain amounts of cases of yeah. produce specifically. And, but the, the issue was that we weren't always sure how much would, we had an idea of what would be coming in, but we weren't always sure. So the orders would come in and then right. the, the folks in the, in the warehouse would go and pick those orders. And, um, so that they would be then like writing down the weight. Um, mm-hmm. So that if a food shelf wants you know, three boxes of, um, I don't know, carrots. And uh, so then we, we needed to um, bill them for that. And it was per pound. I think mm-hmm. it was like something like a cent a pound or something like that. And um, so then the, the wholesale or the warehouse picker would pick the product uh and write it, handwrite it on this like packet of paper with all the different orders. Yeah. And so then, then that like, so I would be processing the order from the, 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 like when they, when the food shops would order it, the whole process would be paused so that the product could be, go be picked and weighed. And then yeah. that sheet would come back to me and I would go reopen those orders and enter in the weights. And I don't know, it was just like this convoluted process to try <laughs> to um, track produce product to get to get it to the food shelves. Um, there were lots of tears shed yeah. over that process. <laughs> and I, I discovered that, um, that, that detailed number tracking and data entry was just not my strength and yeah. not what I wanted to do, uh, contribute to, to the world. Um, <laughs> but, but so then I, my, so the position I spent the longest time at second harvest was in food rescue, Mm-hmm. And with food rescue, that was a lot of education, uh, traveling to different stores. And by stores, I mean your Targets, Walmarts, Cub Foods, Lunds and yeah. Barley's, Fresh Times, um, the, the, the grocery stores mostly, um, mm-hmm. and, and getting the employees to know how to donate, what to donate, um, and, and then coordinating, doing some coordination with drivers. So Second Harvest has... Um, a, a whole fleet of trucks that drive around to different stores. And mm-hmm. uh, these, I mean, these drivers put, they are like some of the hard work, hardest workers that I've ever um, seen, like f- handling, like f- flinging pallets around, saran wrapping them <laughs> up, going to different, pro- the different departments around the store, um, you know, getting diff- like rec- interference with employees who are like, Oh, you know, like trying to tell them how to do their job. And, and, mm-hmm. and these drivers are, um, I don't know that they, they, they put in, in lots of miles and hours and, and lifting and, and I don't, there's just so much technical knowledge that goes into that part of the, the food rescue arena. Yeah. Um, and so my, my, my kind of a lot of my role was like putting fires out. So, um, <laughs> A store would call me. I had like a number, oops, a number of stores that um, I was responsible for. I think that there were about, I want to say like 300 stores okay. in my area um, and in a variety of different sizes. I think I, my territory, so as a food rescue um, specialist was the official title. And so mm-hmm. from the kind of metro Minneapolis up to Pine City and then over to Alexandria. 
and then a, a big chunk of the western suburbs um was was kind of the area that i i worked in mostly in the metro area and but so that's, when a, these that's a huge area though yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Second Harvest has a huge territory that they cover with food shelves mm-hmm. they work with. And sometimes they're just giving once a week deliveries to some of those food shelves. But they, at the time, um, I, I don't know what, I mean, my knowledge is like five years outdated now. Um, mm-hmm. But they, th- there were food shelves down in um, uh, Pipestone County, um, mm-hmm. the f- far, far uh, west, southwest part of the state. Mm -hmm. that they worked in um i think there are five food banks in in minnesota Um, oh okay yeah with second harvest being the largest uh and also i think at the time second harvest was the second largest food bank in the country uh in i think the next one was or there were like one in florida and one in i think it was like houston or something and and second harvest and they would kind of fluctuate who was who was uh the biggest you know doing the most service um mm-hmm. yeah so my so another thing too about um so I, so I mentioned like putting fires out in stores you know there would be um recalls that would come in that wasn't super common um mm-hmm. but every so often there would be a recall and so we'd need to be able to track the product um through when it was picked up where who ordered it you know how it was distributed that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and or like a driver forgot a pallet and this, you know, pallet of of milk is going to go bad if it's not picked up. And so then yeah. the Second Harvest has a whole transportation department and now it's kind of changed. There's been some changes in um, how that's handled. But um, yeah. yeah, so that would be like a, a daily like visiting stores, getting calls from stores, talking to drivers um, and, and trying to divert food from the waste stream into uh food shelves where people who are who are hungry can access it right um it it is very much a band-aid solution to a broken system um the fact that there's you know millions of pounds of food in just one part of the state of of minnesota alone that could be wasted or that was wasted before second harvest um kind of stepped into to catch it i guess Mm -hmm. um that you know there's a there's a production problem and an access problem <laughs> um that yeah so I, I part of my position too so another as i'm thinking about sustainability and food access and um and kind of the food system as a whole yeah i i really struggled um what one of the things that we we did as food rescue specialists was hold recognitions for stores okay. it was a way to encourage store employees to you know keep putting the food that they're calling from the shelves into pro- extra produce boxes designated mm-hmm. for second harvest mm-hmm. and also a way to thank them for taking that extra step that they're not required to do mm-hmm. um but that uh you know is beneficial for all these reasons. And then there'd also be some like training in there, like, Oh, by the way, you know, there was a whole temp, like we were temperature um, rollout when I was at second harvest that our drivers were now temping product. And, you know, it, it, so it really depended upon the employees to know where to store the product for the drivers and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, the part that I really struggled was um, I, this happened a, a number of times at a, at a few different stores um, I would be giving an employee recognition. I'd have a, a certificate that said for the past certain amount of time, usually it was like six months or a year, it would say how much their store donated. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it'd be all logoed and pretty looking and, you know, that kind of like fun, catchy 
certificate for the store to hang up in the back room. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'd be saying, you know, thank you so much for, for donating. Uh, you make a difference. One in six Minnesotans are hungry. Uh, I think the statistic has fluctuated a little bit, but, um, so you're putting food on the table tonight with product that would normally be thrown out. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 uh, uh, higher up, um, so the, the employees at like, let's take Walmart, for example, um, the, the managers and, and higher ups in Walmart wear ties and button ups or, mm -hmm. you know, fancier dress kind of. Um, and so the, I'd be, um, in their morning huddle and at, at, at the time, <clears throat> the, the best way to reach the most employees at Walmart was on Friday mornings at like nine or something like that. Okay. Uh, when they have their huddle, uh, oftentimes I feel like a few different stores would have it in like the sporting goods section because that was the least busy and like if you could, they could have the most employees around and mm -hmm. sporting goods is usually located towards the back of the store. And anyway, I, I've, I've definitely analyzed this <laughs> and, and, and also it was like my tactics to try to reach the most employees. Right, right, um, right. And so the, the higher ups and, you know, their button up tie, um, usually, older white men was what I would see um, yeah. would kind of jump in and, and want to encourage their employees and say, yeah, we know as a, a, our Walmart, we know how important this is um, because we know our Walmart family utilizes these resources. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, the first time I heard that, I was like, what, what, wait a second. I mean, obviously yeah. I know as, as someone who, who grew up, um, you know, with, with a financial instability here and there, um, but still is privileged because I have parents who are well-educated and mm -hmm. were able to find resources. Um, you know, I grew up going to Head Start and, and, and having food in community and knowing how important it is to access that food. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just kind of like my jaw was dropping. I was just like, like, what, what do I do with this? Like their, mm -hmm. their managers are saying to their employees to keep donating product because we know that you're going to the food shelf. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. People who are, are, yeah. Have full-time jobs. Right. I mean, I think this yeah, really kind or of more than full-time jobs. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I, and I think this adds to the, the conversation. Uh, right about living wages and um, yeah, and, and sort of the the kind of just overall brokenness of the system when uh, right folks as part of their jobs are gathering donations that they're going to need after. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and to my my position in part uh, that part of my food rescue position at Second Harvest at the time was funded by a grant from Walmart. So yeah. Walmart. Um, you know, recognizing that they're not paying living wages uh, is then giving money, you know, donating money to the food relief system because they know that that will benefit their employees. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so my, posi my position was partially grant funded from, from Walmart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think Walmart was one of the largest donators at, uh, at the time too. We've reached a good point to end this episode. So far, we've gotten to learn a little bit about Ren, the work within food recovery, what has struck them as some of the deep brokenness of the food systems within the United States. Next episode, we'll return to my conversation with Ren and learn about what they think are some of the factors that contribute to food insecurity, as well as some of the work they think might have the potential to make food more accessible.
Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.